you miss an opportunity at the early age. The brain is a very active developer. The child is sort of, you can see it, a little baby. They just pick up, they just like sponges. They take everything in. Probably the worst trade deal ever agreed ja, to. Ja, the arbeitslosen Zeit seit dem Zweiten Weltkrieg. Breaking news here, stocks all around the world are tanking because of the crisis on Wall Street. Hey guys, my name is Andreas Sato and you're listening to Standard Economics, a podcast where I publish the interviews I do for the newspaper The Standard. It's our third show and today's guest is already the second Nobel Prize winning economics that talks to us. His name is James Heckman, a pretty impressive guy with a 43-page long CV. Heckman won the Nobel Prize in Economics, which doesn't exist, but I don't want to use this weird long name, in 2004, and I quote, his development of theory and methods for analyzing selective samples. So this was all about statistics and econometrics. He did a ton of stuff to improve how economists use their data nowadays, but I chose to talk to him about the area of his work that is directly relevant for policymakers. So he showed that if you invest in disadvantaged children in the very first years of their life, you get a rate of return of like 15%. So that's a whole lot more than you get on your average stock market. So you don't just help those children in getting a better life. As a society, you can actually make a lot of money by just doing that because they get more productive in their later lives. We talked about if equal chances for children are possible. Nope. How much our genetic endowments made of our life? Not that much, it turns out. And why the first years are so crucial. I also showed him how we take care of our children in Austria. So we got some comments on that as well. Uh, there was some construction work going on in a room close by. So there might be some noise every now and then. But this is just in the first 10 to 15 minutes. I hope you get smarter from this conversation. I certainly did. Have fun. Okay, hey guys, I'm here at Palais Coburg in the very center of Vienna with James Heckman. Thank you, James, for taking the time. It's good to be here. Um, you did a lot of work on statistics and econometrics, but, right. I want, but I, what I want to talk to you about is your work on social mobility yes. and the role of early, early years of children for their future. Yes. Uh, when I prepared this conversation, I read a lot of stuff you have written. And I read one very interesting piece in a Wall Street Journal. You wrote it 10 years ago. 10 years ago. Catch and Young. Catch and Young, yes. And there was a very, very interesting sentence in it. And you, you wrote, nowadays families are the biggest uh, source of inequality in our, in our societies. Yes. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, I think uh, if you look around the world, and it's not just in the UN, United States or Austria in particular, it's a phenomenon which is related to uh, controversial issues uh, related to the fact that uh, the family is changing, and by that I mean that the traditional two-parent family uh, with the uh, mother and father uh, together, raising the child, um, and even the notion of marriage, the nature of marriage, and it's not just cohabitation versus marriage, uh, fundamentally the role of women and the family has changed. It's very, those two are quite obviously intimately related. 
So what you see is a general trend is that more women are being educated. Uh, you're also seeing that more women and men are postponing marriage. Uh, when they do get married, they're postponing fertility within marriage. And, and this is the problem I was talking about, the, what's happening is that the less educated in many countries have typically settled in a pattern which resembles the, either single parenting or a very loose kind of cohabitation. And the reason why that's a problem is that we, and I say we, a body of social scientists, psychologists, economists, sociologists, uh, uh, an epidemiologist for that matter, have documented um, for uh, the, the, the stress uh, created by that situation. The stress on the single parent and the stress on the child or the children. And so there's an immediate issue of financial stress, generally speaking, with one earner versus two. The resources available to children is just less. But secondly, too, it is often the case that the time the parents have to spend with the child in child developmental activities will be uh, changed. So what you're getting is a division in society between the more educated, which typically are still married, they're actually having two-parent children and, if anything, spending more time in investing and nurturing their children. It's been documented with the growing awareness of the importance of the early years. More educated women around the world, at least from all the surveys I've seen, are spending more time with their children. On the other hand, less educated women uh, either are, are still having children, uh, typically at earlier ages, and putting the children, I would say, at a risk, not necessarily at an absolute risk, but in a relative risk against the more advantaged children who come from environments where there's more support. So I think it is a big issue. I think it's an issue that many people don't want to talk about, is the changing role of women in the family. It's controversial everywhere. Say, well, more women work. Uh, and, and many people say, well, is working women bad for children? The answer is not necessarily. But bad childcare arrangements, individuals put into, children put into situations where there's much less nurturance than they might get otherwise, that, that represents a risk, a developmental risk. And we understand now the early years are very important, and those early years frequently are where now women are working, and sometimes using very inadequate childcare arrangements. So that's why I think the family understand it's a very politically sensitive issue, because many, many women will strongly object. I mean, in the U.S., we had studies done on, um, by the National Institute of Health surveys collected about what's the consequence of, uh, of uh, adverse parenting, and especially the mother working and putting the child into kind of inferior daycare centers. And it turned out that was a huge issue. Um, and it was a political issue. A lot of the feminists were very, very negative and saying, oh, yeah, this is anti-female. But it isn't. It's actually, I think, pro-family and pro-child and pro-woman. I think many of the mothers would like a better position for their children. They would like. But they also have to work. So there really is a, it's a very interesting. I think the <laughs> women are always interesting. And uh, in this particular instance, the continual redefinition and change of the role of women is probably one of the most fascinating and important phenomena, long-term secular phenomena in society. And that's around the world. It's not just in Europe. It's not just in the U.S.
Hmm. It's true in China. Maybe China women have been maybe more autonomous and independent uh, with real consequences for fertility and for uh, the structure of uh, the family and for what many people would see as values for the children, especially the disadvantaged children. So that's why I think um, I think that's what I meant in the 2006 mm -hmm. article. I would say it with better data now, 10 years later or 11 years later. Mm -hmm. so. And I just read Robert Putnam's book, Our Kids. Yes, Are you right. familiar with his work? I am, yes. And, uh, I have long conversations with him and some others. Uh, I mean, that's broadly based on a 2008 paper I wrote. But he filled in a lot of facts. Mm. Uh, but facts that were collected by sociologists like McClanahan and many demographers, Andrew Cherlin and so forth, documenting the family, changing family structure. And with it, the early child environment. So Putnam's book is a good book. Because consistent with mm -hmm. a large body of evidence. Because he showed that college-educated women are working very often nowadays, yes. also when they're mothers. Correct. And their children are being kept... Um, their, their child care is pretty okay. They're yes. pretty decent. They get a lot of attention by their parents. They have, they have the money to put them in proper child care. So... Um, the woman working is not, not the issue. biggest deal, right? Yes, but you see what's happening, and this is related, uh, an aspect I didn't mention. It's not just that more women are working, but the more, more women becoming educated, more educated women are actually marrying at very high rates. And so what this means is the family situation is such we have two educated parents. There's much more marital sorting going on, partly because the education of women has gone up, Uh, it's much easier now for a woman to marry a man who's, uh, or a man to marry a woman who's highly educated. And that by itself has real consequences for child development and the position of the family. So the sort of mating, the fact that you have more educated people, plays a big role. This phenomenon that Putnam was mentioning was actually first noted by a sociologist, now deceased, unfortunately, Susan Bianchi in American Time News surveys from the 1990s and early 2000s, showing that more educated women were working more, but certainly more time in child development, more time and more resources. And so partly that was an awareness of the importance of this question. But that creates this. There's also another book, I don't know if you looked at, by Charles Murray called Coming Apart. Okay, that describes largely, it actually is a pretty good predictive book of what happened in Uh, the last election in 2016, uh, about what's happening is this elite, more educated group of individuals in the U.S. are marital sorting, going to college, delaying childbearing, the mothers frequently gaining access to careers and giving themselves a large flow of resources from both parents. And at the bottom of the distribution, educational distribution, typically single parenthood, poverty, and child disadvantage. He didn't emphasize the child disadvantage, but it's the complement of what you're seeing from uh, Putnam in his book. So those, those, those have been out, the studies have been out showing that, and uh, that's what I meant in 2006, was that there really are strong trends that are moving towards inequality, and I would argue immobility in the larger society. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your research that shows that if you grow up in 
not very stable conditions, why this is a huge problem for the development of a child? Well, I think we've come to understand better. I mean, everybody's always understood at an intuitive level the importance of the mother, the family, and the nurture. But I think what's happened now is more evidence has come in from neuroscience, from developmental psychology, and now increasingly from long-term economic studies that when children's, disadvantaged children's environments are supplemented. So, you know, the problem is if you look at a correlation, say disadvantaged children are not um, doing well and uh, when they grow up and more advantaged children uh, do better, uh, that's not clear exactly what's going on because there are a lot of things associated with disadvantage. Um, although there is, by the way, I don't know if you saw this paper that was just published in a new British journal called Nature Neuroscience. You know this? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a paper uh, documenting uh, a cohort of children in uh, New Zealand mm -hmm. called the Dunedin Cohort. This is a large sample of children followed from birth now to their late 30s. And the study is actually quite interesting because it documents that a, a, something they call the Pareto Principle. Pareto, years ago, uh, Alfredo Pareto wrote that there was uh, that 80% of uh, problems uh, were caused by about 20% of the population. And so what they do is they actually document what a number of problems like crime, like excessive health care, uh, usage, uh, social engagement, a lack of education, drug use, and on and on and on, that's connected with a very hardcore group of individuals. Hardcore, I'd say, a, very, a small group of individuals, no more than 20% of the population, are causing about 80% of what many people would call social burden. And the predictors of when that can be, when of which children are at risk, are actually determined quite early on, ages three to five. So I wrote a commentary on this article, and the paper's published in, the, in this new journal. It's really the first issue of this journal, I think. And what's interesting about it is that it's very consistent with, with more constructive evidence. So instead of just, that's a correlation still, you're looking at situations. But now, to sort of translate that into understanding that might be deeper, you ask, suppose we improve the early life conditions of children by giving them, say, randomly assigning, as has been done, uh, early uh, environments to be enriched. So it's not replacing the parent, it's supplementing the parent. It's giving the child kind of advantages that middle-class children would have normally. And then you can follow those children over their life cycles. So we follow them now. We have a new study which we're just analyzing with the children now 55 years of age. They were initially enrolled in the early 1960s. And so, going to 50, 55. And so what we're getting is evidence in, in some recent studies done on another cohort started in the 1970s when the supplementation is given to the family and, by the, and to the child. You see dramatic effects on the adult lives of those children. So it's then kind of corroborating what's the importance of the family. What you're doing is supplementing family life and you're kind of fueling it. You're building stronger parent-child relationships you're basically integrating the parent with the child. 
providing then a richer environment for the child over the whole lifetime through engaging the mother more actively in the life of the child, explaining the value, and then at the same time giving the child early stimulation and encouragement. So that's, I would argue, a positive response to what challenging family life is and the harm it may have. And I think it does illustrate the importance of the family because what you're doing is basically providing enriched family-like environments for the children and supporting the family. Mm-hmm. So that sense, I think, again, it, it is a positive commentary. That not only is this population of disadvantaged children uh, at great risk, but there's something constructive that can be done about it. And I think that's the, that's the positive mm-hmm. social take on this. What did they do with, with the children? How did they supplement the parents? Okay, well, there are different strategies, but what it comes down to, and again, see, this is a matter of scientific discussion. Uh, a lot of the early studies did lots of things, and so it's kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know, throwing, a, a maybe like shooting a shotgun, you know, with many pellets <laughs> of different types towards, towards an animal, and you never really know which pellet killed a bird or something. But in this case, um, looking over a range of studies, The part that's most consistent, and the, one, the part that I see as providing consistent evidence, and I'll show you why I think it's, tell you why it's consistent, because pieces of it have been broken out, but the consistency is basically enhancing the parent-child relationship, what psychologists for years have called the attachment relationship, but bolstering that and the kind of encouraging the child and encouraging the parent to interact with the child in a constructive way. And so the ingredient of that activity seems to be at the heart of almost all successful human development programs. And it's not just early childhood. You're talking about adolescent programs with mentoring. I would call mentoring a form of age-adjusted parenting. You're providing advice, giving guidance, and interacting with the child. And so I think in that regard, there's a tremendous uh, opportunity Uh, for generalizing from this. And why do I generalize that? Well, some of these programs had many, many features, you know, more improved health. Some of these were pro- programs were like eight hours a day, eight or nine hours a day, starting at eight weeks and then going to age five. Very long, very intensive program, very expensive. But there was a program that was administered in Jamaica and it was a very stripped down program. And these were kids who were primarily disadvantaged because of stunting. They were actually low nutrition, uh, nutritional environments, but poverty, associated with poverty. And the program had a very simple quality. It gave nutrients to the children, which is standard. But then it also promoted interaction between the parent and the child. And so how did that go? They taught the mother how to interact with the child, they said, making coloring books. And by asking the mother, telling the mother, this is very constructive. Uh, here, go with your child. And like the child was in this room, the child would try to describe, you know, by visually or verbally, you're trying various interactions to describe situations, to engage situations, and to initiate this back and forth between the parent and the child. Well, there was again a randomized controlled trial. We followed those children. We follow those children now, we're following them now to age 30. But the published studies are into the mid-20s. And what we found was substantially 
improved outcomes for the children who were subject to the stimulation. People who had the nutrients were fine. Yeah, the nutrients did you know, have some effects, but the major effect came from this notion of building the parent-child interaction. So it's, and you see this repeatedly. That's what I'm saying. That's why I think the essence is. So even in these very intensive programs, you can also monitor the nature of the parent-child interaction. And what you come up with is something that's quite, uh, quite dramatic in the sense of seeing a much more enhanced home environment. And home environment, you know, words spoken to the child, the nature of the words spoken, and the engagement with the child. So those, I think, are, I think are the key. And it's kind of commonsensical that would be important. Much more so than just... I mean, see, you have to be careful. If we were talking about some extremely poor countries, for example, some places in Africa where, say, Malawi, or some place where you have a standard, or Haiti, where the standard of living uh, is so low, that you know, basic nutrients, uh, vitamins, and, uh, and uh, supplement, mineral supplements would really play a key role. I mean, they really would be very, very effective, and that's long outside this notion of stimulation. But given children at a reasonable level of well-being, and reasonable here, can still be relatively poor in terms of absolute standards, but if you get like a minimum level of sustenance in terms of biological ingredients, what you'll find is a strong, uh, a strong relationship between the parental uh, guidance and stimulation and the child outcomes. And that, I think, is uh, key. Mm. And your, your research also shows us that um, very often when children come into school, it's already too late to well, stimulate them. Well, let's be careful. When you say too late, I mean, I don't, I, there's a danger here of uh, mm. determinism. You know, there used to be this sense of, uh, like a hundred years ago, When people were talking about social Darwinism, they were talking about like a genetic determination. And I'm worried about the other side, where people are saying, oh, it's too late, like you just said. Mm. I don't think it's ever too late. I just think that you miss advantages. So when I say too late, it's in a sense of an opportunity foregone. You can get a much better outcome if you intervene early. But it's not that there, it's like there's some fatal age, some critical age, and then you should just abandon the child or do something very dramatic. It's just that it gets harder. It's just part of the natural, uh, it's, it, the, the evolution of uh, learning and the flexibility of the child. You miss an opportunity at the early age. The brain is a very active developer. The child is sort of, you can see it, a little baby. They just pick up, they just like sponges. They take everything in. And it's been documented, you know, pruning of the, uh, of uh, nerve synapses, uh, uh, unused synapses are pruned, uh, but the child at a very early age is learning at a very rapid rate. So there is a sense that there's a real opportunity there. But we keep learning our whole lives. So it's not like we're suddenly frozen at a given age. We're not. I mean, people have found that 80, 85-year-old cancer patients near death are basically still undergoing what is called neurogenesis. They're creating new uh, neurons. They are learning. It's just at a slower rate. And so I think... But it gets way, way harder, right? After six or seven... Well, it depends on the skill. You see, it's mm -hmm. interesting because the other part of this whole development 
has been understanding much more the structure of uh, what we call uh, an entire array, a spectrum of skills. See, much of the discussion has been ruined by people focusing on IQ and uh, high, high achievement, achievement tests or PISA scores, for example. And the fact of the matter is, that's important. It's more, it's partly important for finishing school, but even there, it's not the only arbiter. But more recently, we've come to understand a much broader array of skills, social and emotional skills. Mm -hmm. uh, non, what sometimes called non-cognitive skills, but uh, emotional, social skills, and so forth. And the reason why I emphasize that is that those skills are more malleable at later ages. There's more flexibility in fact. People's personalities become richer and richer as they get older. So the kind of strategies that children, a two-year-old would have, a three-year-old, nowhere near the kind of strategies that a 14-year-old would have. And there actually is an evolution and much less stability. So by age 10 or something, it's very hard to change IQ in a, in a relative sense. It's called rank stability. If you're high, if you're smart at age 10 in an IQ sense, then you're pretty likely to be smart unless something very adverse happens or maybe something very beneficial happens. But uh, for non-cognitive skills, there's a lot of malleability and it's associated with this whole process of maturation and it's been studied. It's been studied by not only by economists but certainly by the psychologists and personality psychologists that you're getting a sort of efflorescence of personality and the capacity, I see, I think of personalities as strategies. People have strategies for dealing with life. And I think as we get older, we have more such strategies and events than more aspects of what we normally call personality. And if we look at out life outcomes, what we find is that things like IQ, which people talk about as being so important, if we look at data from U.S. and England, I don't know if there's comparable data in, the, in Austria or Germany. I know that with the new uh, German socioeconomic panel, there is evidence that's consistent that you can explain how much of the variability of earnings among people can you explain by IQ? Well, many people say half, big. No, it's not. It's like three or four percent, most, sometimes less. These other factors play a very big role, and those other factors are valuable. So I think we need a much richer notion about how we even measure human progress, how, what, how human development is measured, and then whether or not the skills are set in stone. So, so it is the case that earlier is better. It's not inconsistent saying earlier is better. And also to say there's still opportunities down the line. They're just like the rate of return uh, would be relatively lower, but relatively low can still be quite high. So if you look at an 18-year-old and you can put those child... Uh, that, that adolescent into a rich, environmentally rich program, mentoring and suggesting and giving advice and learning how to deal with the world, that can have huge consequences and be substantial payoffs. So, so in that sense, I'm actually more uh, inclined to say no. There's not. There are there are critical and sensitive periods. That's been done, but in very special ways, like people. You know, if they're not exposed, if they literally are not exposed to light at a certain age, like a child is born blind with cataracts, 
They're not going to move, it turns out. At a certain age, it gets to be extremely difficult with this current technology we have to, to induce sightedness in the child if you, say, operate at age five. Um, if your child is growing up with very serious deficiencies of iron and zinc, but iron in particular, you can have IQ deficits that last a lifetime. Those are biologically documented critical periods. But for other aspects, I, I think it's just a matter of uh, saying it gets less effective, not that it's ineffective. I think that's important. So it's not all over at three, it's not all over at five. And some people have communicated that somehow it's all. And this is the danger of taking a perspective mm -hmm. that's looking at only early childhood. I know that I've gotten attached to that subject. Uh, my work has been used. But we also have a body of work over the whole life cycle. And it shows that there are very successful interventions later in the life cycle. And those can be quite effective in uh, promoting skills. So uh, I don't think it's all over for any of us. <laughs> mm, but you, you would tell a politician if you want to enhance the, the lifetime chances of a, of a child, then um, you, you should focus on the, on the very first years because you have the biggest effect. It doesn't mean when there are eight They're lost, but if you want to help them, start early. Well, yes, but partly it's because of the way that most societies are organized now. You see, there's been a big emphasis in just about every Western country, and many Eastern countries now, Asian countries, on formal schooling. And so people think of formal schooling as starting about five, maybe kindergarten. I know that in countries around, different countries have different notions of child care even starting earlier and enriched child care. But in, like in Denmark, it's very rich, very, uh, very intensive system, although not as rich as people think it is. But I think uh, what I would emphasize would be that, yes, the early years are relatively neglected compared to the later years. That we think of formal schooling as being the only uh, ingredient for successful lives of children. And I think that ignores two things. One, the early years, and the other is also the role of the family, both in the early years and in supporting the child in school. So somehow this idea that family policy is different from education policy is a mistake. That really, in the end, we're talking about boosting families, and that if we have families supporting children in school and before they enter school, you're going to have a much more active society much more vigorous uh, development of children. So I would say yes. I would say it's a, rel it's a question of relative emphasis. Mm. That right now, I think, because of a lot of tradition in schooling, I mean, schooling is a major, powerful determinant of life outcomes, and nobody doubts that. I will. It's just that what goes on before people enter schooling is important, and then how families are supporting the child, both in those preschooling years and schooling years, also important. So it's like saying family policy and educational policy shouldn't really be separated, although they frequently are. People think of this as like separate issues. And uh, that's where we get back to the mother working and saying, is that harmful? You can't say it's harmful. If you have very rich childcare opportunities, it's probably even, maybe even beneficial. If especially if the mother is not very patient with the child and so forth. So it's, uh, it's a more integrated approach to mm -hmm. public policy. 
Um, how much, if we, if we look at the IQ of a, of a person, how much can you, can you increase the IQ with proper childcare, even if the IQ is not that important, but it's still better to have cognitive skills than to don't sure. have them? Well, no, we actually studied that in a recent uh, paper. Uh, we actually looked at what the boosts were in IQ. What's interesting is that it seems like the programs that start at a very early age, we're talking before age three, one program that we study in particular at age, uh, starting at age eight weeks, boosted the IQ of children, and it was a fairly substantial boost. I'm, I'm trying to remember the actual, uh, in terms of standard deviations of IQ, but there were persistent effects, at least as measured through age 21. And now we're actually studying a group of people who are going to be in their 50s, but we're just at the beginning of that, so I hate to say, you know, you know it does look like there may be lasting effects of those on the IQ even at the later ages. But through the time, through the age at which we measured, age 21, we find very strong effects. Strong effects, so how big? Well, I'd say maybe a quarter of a standard deviation of IQ, which is substantial. Can you translate that for people that didn't study statistics? Statistics, okay, well, <laughs> I would say when you think about IQ points, you know, we think of 100 as more or less the standard, that what you can do is you start with children who are uh, IQ, say, about 90, say below average, but not super below average, and you can boost their IQ maybe five, six points, which is substantial. I mean, it has effects on, on outcomes. Certainly school, it has an effect on school. So that's a big boost. Sounds small, five points, but it's not. Because you think of the so-called standard deviation is about 15 points. So I've said like a third of a standard deviation, maybe a little bit less. But there are persistent effects when we've measured it through age 21. So, long effects. Um, you did a lot of research on, on, the, on the effects the environment has on the children, yes. family environment. Another very... A hot topic to touch are genes. How genetic? Yeah. Um, genetic impacts. How much do genes explain when we look at um, how a child develops? Well, again, that's an area that's undergoing a lot of, uh, well, you know, the historical uh, feeling about that and the social Darwinist view was basically genetic determination was everything. Uh, if you look, take literally the work of the, uh, what are called behavioral genetic studies, they will tell you that many attributes, personality, IQ, many other attributes are actually uh, inherited to the extent of about 50%. But the trouble with this, and, and I think this is the trouble, that the studies don't fundamentally control. Even though they're, they're time-honored, they've been conducted for more than a century now, or at least around a century. What they don't do is they don't adequately control for the true effect of environment. So when you think about nature and nurture, nurture itself is affected in part by the environment. Sorry, by the genetics. So you might find that a more educated parent is also a smarter parent. And so when you think, well, it's, what's the role of the education of the parent? Using crude statistical methods, you can really kind of mask the role of genetics. 
So there's work done by a uh, psychologist at the University of Virginia, a guy named Turkheimer. And he claimed, and I would have told you this until recently, <laughs> that's why it's an area always evolving, that he claimed that you could find among a very disadvantaged people that the heritability of IQ was not 50%, it was more like 20%. So the environment played a very big role. He didn't control for the effect of IQ on environment. And more recently, people have challenged this finding and suggested, well, there's still a... I mean, the idea is that if you get to an extreme condition, like in a desert, if you're in a desert area and you're trying to raise a plant, there may be some fundamental genetics associated with the plant, but if the plant doesn't get any water, the plant won't grow, period. So you will not get any kind of expression of genes or anything else. So the idea is, well, in bad environments really play a very harmful role. And so the role of the genetics would be muted by the bad environment, right? So literally, if you don't have an opportunity to grow, then you're not going to find much of an effect of what the, the plant itself would have done, what the, what the natural genetics would have done. That's kind of, uh, that was a view that was traditional. But more recently, there have been studies done, a group at Northwestern and um, the, uh, the human resources group there, has shown that there is a uh, strong, stronger than we thought heritability effect, that there really is a persistence. Uh, it's not, you know, it's a subject that's uh, still under debate, and it's hard to believe. But the other part is, of course, that if you look at the genetics of the, uh, of the, of the complexity here, single gene explanations for anything are more or less non-existent. Increasingly, people have done what they call polygenetic mechanisms. They look at whole scans, genome-wide scans, and they pick up combinations of genes that turn out to be relatively predictive for things like education and so forth, smoking and certain other kinds of behaviors. So it's not like there's a single gene. There are many, you know, all these genes and the polymorphisms of the genes. But if you go across all of these different kinds of gene combinations, what you do find is some predictive power. But it's not the whole story either. But it is, it is important. Obviously, we know for certain diseases, it's really highly significant, right? There are heritable diseases. You know, Ashkenazi Jews have Tay-Sachs syndrome. Uh, there are things that have to do with uh, uh, heritability of things like sickle cell and other diseases that uh, are known to affect hunting uh, corn was it Hunter's Corrington disease? Uh, there is a there are a series of uh, diseases that are well known, but when you get to aspects of social performance, uh, it gets a little less sharp. But there are genetic influences. But on the other hand, there's been some more recent work. When I say recent, 20, 30 years, where people have noticed how the gene expression itself is modified by environments, and it's heritable across generations. The study about epigenetics. So what's happening is it turns out that uh, the gene itself doesn't do anything. It's how the gene is essentially manifest in making proteins and sort of creating, uh, creating uh, uh, the activity that the cell is doing, which then leads to the behaviors that we actually measure. And it turns out that that aspect, no, no it's not DNA, through the RNA, 
which activates the DNA and enables it, there really does seem to be, uh, first of all, uh, social influence, and secondly, there's heritability of that social influence. So there does seem to be adversity on the part of the mother and even the grandmother can show up in the third generation. Uh, it's about as far as it's been measured. So this is a lot of these studies have been done more with mice and chimpanzees and so forth. And there's some evidence, some evidence on human populations. It's make uh, you know, it's a, you got to be careful. I mean, it's too much. Uh, uh, I think too much concern maybe to read into it the notion that human history is shaping our epigenetic expression. But it's hard not to go there to think the populations that have been systematically oppressed that have been kind of denied opportunities, there may be a, an epigenetic trace, but no serious epigeneticist that I've seen yet or talked to, and I'm not an epigeneticist, so understand I'm just drawing on what I've talked about, but uh, recently, like last May, I was in Tel Aviv, and there's a very famous uh, epigenetics, uh, uh, epigeneticist named Eva Jablanca, who's teaching at the University of Tel Aviv, and if you look at her work, she's very, very careful, but skeptical of sort of massive environmental influences. But there are environmental influences. There are traces of those. And you can see it. Actually, I actually even wrote a paper myself, but on rhesus monkeys. I mean, this is where we actually could do experiments on these animals, and you can actually see how the early environmental conditions affected the gene expression. And in particular, the gene expression of creating resistance or uh, resistance to or enhancement of uh, immune deficiencies. So we could actually follow and see how, you know, certain kinds of things called like C-reactive protein and so forth were actually modified by adverse experiences and transmitted across generations. And we're in the middle of that. So monkeys, I mean, the rhesus monkey is close to us in terms of its biology. I mean, it's not... Obviously, it doesn't have an IQ like humans would and has a different social structure, but it does have a biology that's similar, and we can then experiment, or at least traditionally have been able to experiment on those uh, populations and see the effects of environment by operating through gene expression. So it's interesting. So again, see, this is what makes this whole subject so interesting, is that it puts together elements of uh, science, uh, hardcore science, biology, as well as social science, and integrating and understanding human development. So a much broader view of how we get to be who we are, how rich we are, how complex we are. I mean, we're very... I mean, I don't think we fully understand who we are yet, and I think it'll probably be millennia before we do. Uh, but we have a better inclination, uh, some inklings anyway, of what we're, where we're we going and what... What makes us? And so the idea of immutable skills and the idea that somehow we're fixed at birth, uh, this idea of development, I think, is, is both exciting and it offers opportunities for uh, promoting social mobility and opportunity, which is why it's very, exciting. Very complex topic. Yes. Um, I'm going to ask a very unscientific question. Sure. Um, if we look at a person that is maybe 30 or 40 years old, and if we look at different effects on his, um, his cognitive and non-cognitive skills, yes. how much of his, I don't know, earnings or success in life, however you 
um, I'd define that how much can you explain by his social environment, how much can you explain by uh, genetic predisposition, how much can you explain by personal effort. Can you give me numbers, like an educated guess? Well, you've got to be careful because those three components, you're suggesting they add up, like A, B, and C. And the trouble is they interact strongly. And so, for example, somebody who is... Uh, like, take somebody, for example. Here's an example. Suppose somebody is diagnosed with uh, uh, a serious genetic disease. And so you know your mortality is going to be such that at age 50, it's very likely you're going to be dead or incapacitated because of some genetic predisposition. Okay, well, if you know that, you're going to typically do less investing in yourself, less education, and so forth. And you may develop an attitude towards saying, you know, seize the day, I should try to avoid, you know, too much effort, and I should really enjoy what's left. Um, so that's why I, I hate to say, uh, I hate to give you some numbers that I just make up on the spot. But people have tried to address this. And, you know, for example, Sam Bowles and, and, uh, and Herb Gentis have a calculation they put out 15 years ago. And according to their calculations, genetic components played a very, very minimal role. Very minimal role. And they were looking at things like earnings, even education and health and so forth. Um, if you ask what did family influence play, well, don't forget social influence can include things like, did you go to school? Did you even have schools to go to? Like if we were to look at the outcome of children, I mentioned Malawi or Haiti or some really disadvantaged families, environments. So you ask in Afghanistan, say in rural areas where children have no access, the lack of education would have a huge role. So yes, I think in extreme situations, the environment can, can play and will play a huge role. I mean, take the case where women, little girls in particular in some of these countries, aren't even allowed to go to school. And so for them, they, are, they grow up as illiterates. They have no understanding of a lot of modern technology or modern communication even. And uh, because they can't read and write, for them, the opportunities are very restricted. And they would follow a role that's very traditional uh, and probably less... Uh, Less inspired. So for them, I think the environment would be almost all important. So that's why I have to be careful. I mean, different political and social configurations. But I think if you look at like Western countries, like say a country like Austria or Germany or a place like uh, France or US for that matter, UK, there have been attempts to kind of look at family influence studies. And family influence plays a very big role. I mean, what you... But your trouble is, what do you mean by family influence? It's this whole pantheon of influences. It's not just put genetics aside. It also represents, you know, the income, the nurturing, and, and then you can ask more deeply. So but family influence plays a huge role. That's why I went back earlier in our conversation saying families play very decisive. And so in, we know that in the absence of a good family, our families that actually are nurturing families, they can have serious consequences on children. Orphans raised in very disadvantaged circumstances can have huge uh, deficits. You know, find a lot of those kids raised in, it, like the Romanian orphans who were not just left off to themselves, were a large fraction of that population. The women often became prostitutes. The men were engaged in crime. They really were kind of cut loose from any kind of social tie. And with it, 
So there I would say that's family influence. They literally do not have the structure uh, that many children would have in a normal way, and it shows up. So you want a very simple proportion. I'm, I'm evading your answer uh, deliberately because I hate them. Because I think it matters. But I do think family influence plays an enormous role, and, and a role that's not fully recognized. And, and even, see, when you think about education, say, what role does education play? Well, education is enhanced if the parents help the child in school and, and enhance and react to the, to the education and even may benefit from the education. If you have a less educated parent and the child is actually uh, coming home reading and explaining new things to the parent, that could be a multi-generation effect. So, so I would say that the, that the role of genetics may be exaggerated because it, the way that... Look, the, the classic example... I mean, I'm wearing glasses now, so here, I, you know, we know that uh, nearsightedness is very strongly genetically affected. So classic articles in economics have pointed out repeatedly that, yes, there is a strong heritability of nearsightedness. But look, I'm wearing glasses, and I can correct it. So it's never just a question of the genetics. It's a question of what would be, how efficient, how easy is it to address the disparities caused by the genetics. So it's always the effectiveness of social policy, not the origins of the initial problem. And the same is true if I was mentioning, for example, the blindness that would come from, say, uh, cataracts, or even more dramatically, maybe vitamin A. I mean, literally, children in certain areas don't get enough vitamin A, and it leads to blindness. There, for like one cent, one cent, one drop of vitamin A, at that early stage in life of the child will give you sightedness. And, and that's... Maybe the vitamin A deficiency could be genetic. I don't know if it is. It's certainly cultural. It's certainly that certain areas are poor. But the intervention there is enormously effective because of the cheapness and the large consequences for life. So I think we have to think more about... So you don't want to just look at source. Because the trouble is with genetics, and you use that category, people think of it in a way that's kind of very fixed, as if there's nothing we can do about it. But there's everything we can do about it. There's virtually, even the, the genetic diseases, the ones that are inherited, like sickle cell, seems to be highly heritable. It's not that you can completely avoid sickle cell, but you can manage it. And the same thing would be true. I don't know much about Tay-Sachs. I know that it has serious developmental consequences for children. But I would guess there have been strategies developed. I mean, I'm not a doctor, so... Uh, but I guess a whole variety of disease... This Huntington's Carrera disease, I think, is not so easily treatable yet. But again, you could ask doctors. You have good doctors here in New York. I know a lot more than I do, so I shouldn't. So that's why I'm going to evade your question in some sense. Okay. But, but I do think that's... But I would say social environment plays a huge role. And it, mm. so, in, in a way that we don't... If you define it broadly enough, it's probably everything in the end. Because how we react in some sense, is how social policy that would include not just the family but the way society reacts to these questions as part of the social environment. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot we can do. Okay, I would like to come to the point where we can where we use your research to, uh, to look at Austria, the situation in Austria. Uh, first I would like to ask you 
if we if we if we want to look for one country that can learn us how we should how we should organize early childhood education in Austria, which country should we look to? Well, I mean, I think maybe many people would tell you Denmark or maybe Norway um, or Sweden. I'm hesitant. And the reason why I say that is I recently wrote a paper on this and I've studied this. And it's certainly true that the, if you compare the U.S. to Denmark and you look at disadvantaged children, and there's always a difficulty in making international comparisons about you know, purchasing power, exactly what you mean by disadvantage. But looking at the structure of disadvantage in a way that, you know, we do some, we try to be careful in this regard. What we find is that the structure of the family, uh, there, there really are disadvantaged Danish children. But what happens is there's a very rich intervention in terms of getting enhanced child care, enriched child care, daycare leaves, providing uh, better preschools, providing early environments. And it shows up in the sense that if you look at test scores, that the distribution of test scores in the U.S. shows a much more adverse outcome near the bottom of the distribution than anything in Denmark. And that's even true if you get rid of certain ethnic populations. There have been some issues discussed. So there really is some evidence that Danish social policy has promoted the opportunity of children, at least as measured by test scores. But if you look at the question of how persistent educational status is across generations, Denmark and the U.S. are very similar. So what's going on? And it's interesting because the Danish system has, yes, much richer environments for early childhood. But then when it goes, when the children are deciding to go to school and to continue on their education, they face very steep tax rates and very steep disincentives. And so... Part of the Danish welfare state is, of course, a high tax and redistribution system. So, in some sense, the disincentives in that system undo. So, you get this big skill base, but then children are making good use of it simply because they are facing very adverse incentives to go on and get more education. I mean, if you basically are taxed at 50, 60% of your income, and, and, and even more, you can't. Uh, you think about what the social benefits are for people who aren't uh, actively working, that it actually can pay not to go on to school. And so if you have such perverse... So you have to think of it as a whole social system. I'm an economist, after all. And, and in some fundamental sense, you want to look at the incentives that people have to build their skills, as well as what the policies are that create the skills. And I think that's what's... That's what's missing. So if I were to say, oh, Denmark, I'd say, look at the whole package in Denmark. So there are parts of the Danish system that are very admirable, but there are also parts that are not. I can show you some figures showing remarkable gaps between the advantaged and disadvantaged children in Denmark, despite the high level of social spending on early child care programs. And why? Even in the child care programs, the early child care, certainly in schools, People are sorted, and the quality of schools, the peers, the relationships are fundamentally different. 
And so there really is a sense, again, to come back to the family. The family, its decisions, where to live, how much to invest in their children, even in a very, very generous welfare state, play a more important role than many people would have thought. So that, to me, is interesting. And those, those, by the way, it turns out that if you look at generations of these gaps across children, starting at the earliest ages and following them up until their 60s, you'll find substantial gaps depending on the education of the mother. And that's in, that's in and what I think most people would see is one of the most generous welfare states in, in the world, right? So there really is a sense that social policy is not just a matter of spending money, but I think it's also engaged in changing the nature of the environment that gives opportunities. So I would say equalizing in a fundamental sense the advantages of family. And that's more than spending money in schools. That's what I learned from Denmark. So yes, I would say that the social policy, I don't think there's any country that's perfect in this regard. So if Denmark's got its problems, my God, what about the US and so forth? But there are elements that can be understood. You know, working with the families, providing opportunities for children. And so in that sense, they, they give you some guide. Hmm. So I hate to say, you know, there's something you can take off the shelf and use. Uh, you never can, anyway. But I still go back to the ingredient of trying to enrich the family, stimulate the family, and then just recognize the way the family is changing. I mean, the whole role of women, the whole role of childbearing, the whole role of... And the consequences are still being fully worked out. I mean, this is something that's been going on for more than a century or two. And I still think we are in the process of understanding what might be the best way to both help the current generation and the future generation. So that's why I think, you know, we have this one study that I conducted recently that showed the effects of a childcare program enriched. But it offered daycare. It was enriched childcare. And so what it did was simultaneously, these are disadvantaged parents and disadvantaged children, it simultaneously allowed women to work and gain more education and enhance their own capacities. And at the same time, it engaged the children and so it had effects both within the current generation and the next generation. And it has very high economic and social benefits, both contemporaneously in this generation of mothers, working mothers, many of them single parent, and also the next generation of the children. And that I think is, the, but it's, a, it's an intervention of supplementing parenting. Supple, supplementing parenting sounds very harsh, it sounds intrusive. What I mean is offering opportunities to children, but the opportunities that the parents take. We're not talking about compulsion, we're talking about choice. And I think that's very important because you have to engage the family. The idea that somehow you replace, you know, Plato had this idea, you know, that the way to equalize, and he was on to something, but I think his solution was bad. His, his idea was that, well, to equalize opportunity, all the children of Athens should be raised in orphanages to get rid of all family influence. So he's right, family influence is central, but it turned out to be exactly the wrong thing to do, is to kind of put these kids in state because it really minimized 
the contact. Parents have this, most parents anyway, have this deep love for children that no alternative institution can quite do as well. It can help supplement it, but you can't, you've got to engage the parent. That's the central. I mean, the mother, I think, people don't like to say the mother increasingly, it seems uh, sexist and so forth, but the fact is there's a very close bond between the mother and the child to this day, and uh, it's the mother predominantly who's playing that role. And uh, although many women would deny it now, it's how the father can play the role, but there is some tie. But whatever, it's certainly the case that uh, the family should be uh, supported and should be engaged, but engaged in a way that is essentially uh, a supplement voluntarily chosen supplement, not coerced. Okay, let me explain to you how the situation is in Austria right now. It's mandatory for children um, to go to the kindergarten for one year. Mm-hmm. If At what age? Like five. five. Yeah. Um, and if you have um, cognitive problems, it's mandatory to go there for two years. So you start with four until six. Okay. And but Austria has a very, uh, we have very conservative culture, and a lot of women are skeptical letting their children to go to uh, early childcare. So I'm now showing showing you an OECD graph where Austria is one of the countries with the least amount of children from the age from zero to two in formal childcare. If you look here, this is by education. It shows that if you're from, if your mother is not very educated or doesn't earn a lot of money, it's very, very unlikely you you will be in formal childcare from age zero to two. Mm-hmm. And even if you if your mother is rich and well educated, it's still at 20%. percent. If we look at, for example, Denmark, we have like 70%. percent. Mm-hmm. So this is the situation in Austria. But what's the corresponding proportion of women who are working, say, in Austria versus, say, Denmark? If, I mean, what fraction, I don't know, what's the labor force participation rate of uh, Austrian women? Um, it's very high, but it's predominantly part-time. Part-time. So yeah, okay. most of the mothers work, but they work part-time. Yeah, okay. So, and, so when you say there's no child care, what are they doing with the children? Ah, they're staying at home with them. Staying at home. <clears throat> um, uh, family, family boundaries are very important. So grand, grand, grandparents looking after the children. Yeah. But see, that's not by itself necessarily bad, mm-hmm. in the sense that if the parents are providing a very rich environment, I, I, mean, I would argue that no government, no private organization outside the family can do as well as what a good nurturing family could do. Um, but on the other hand, if the children are being put in some kind of bad environment, that could create very negative consequences. So it's really a question of what the quality is of the environment in which the child... So if you have, for example, uneducated mother raising the child and without knowledge of the importance of sort of stimulating the child, reading to the child, and so forth, there can be serious harm done to that child. Harm in the sense of opportunities wasted, uh, and sometimes even uh, emotional uh, instability. It's been documented, for example, that mediocre uh, 
childcare arrangements can be very harmful, actually more for boys than for girls. Girls turn out to be more resilient. So in that sense, there's a real loss. But you've got to be careful. It's not just a question of the fraction in childcare. It's a question of the quality of the childcare. And it's the quality of the childcare relative to the quality of the home environment in terms of nurturing the child. So that's why I'm a little hesitant to make too broad a set of comments because childcare alone has like a dual feature. It can be very good or it can be very bad. And if it's bad, then it can actually make things worse. If it's good, it'll help. So that's kind of tautological, I guess, but it's actually uh, uh, related strongly. And we see that in the U.S. You see a lot of uneducated women uh, who are single parents uh, having to work and then using very cheap childcare arrangements. If you're at a minimum wage job, if you're at a minimum wage job in the U.S. and you're making, say, $8 an hour, the cost of childcare in a lot of these centers even moderate, moderate child care can be eight, $9,000 a year. So you're spending more than half of your income on child care alone. So it's no accident, by the way, that uh, Ivanka Trump apparently is putting, suggesting a policy for her father. I just read about this over the weekend where she's putting forward some large-scale tax incentive policy to essentially promote use of quality child care. And again, with the notion being that this is it's two issues. It's a woman's issue supporting the woman to work and women more and more have to support themselves. And secondly, supporting the child care quality. Mm. So that's why that's why I think you want to think of bundling some of these questions and putting them together with what's important for the family and also what's important for the child. Um, um, with all the work you've done on, on how children develop, um, there's, there's one thing that nearly every politician agrees on. We want equal chances, equal opportunities for every child in our country. Yes. I think everybody would sign that. Mm-hmm. And just about everybody would say that, although they're not clear how to do that. <laughs> is there a way, is there a practical way to, to, make, to create equal opportunity for all the children in the country? Or is that something that is... That is a value on its own to try to get as close as possible, but that's, it's completely unrealistic. Well, I think it comes back to the issue of the family and, and, and the central role of the family. If you can create environments that neutralize the impact of family, and by neutralizing, see, that, that's a very dangerous term, because you, you know, there's no standard here. So you could put everybody in extreme poverty, <laughs> or basically, or put them in orphanages, like I was saying earlier. That you don't want to do. So we don't think it's equalization alone. I think what we probably are talking about is making sure that the possibilities of each child are realized. That so, if we, there are, there's no question. I mean, here in Austria, you have had your Mozarts and your Wittgensteins and. Freud's, and uh, uh, you've had uh, such an array of talent up here. And some of those people just had, I mean, how can you describe Mozart except as a genius? You know, he can compose effortlessly and so forth. But you would want somebody who is maybe not as good as Mozart, 
but still to offer the best. So I think we have a kind of this fundamental desire to give people equal chance given their endowments, given what, what they're born with. And there are natural talents, there's no question. And I think the way we would do that would be to try to equalize the advantages. So, but, but without, without destroying what middle class and upper middle class families would do for their children, to offer those kinds of environments to less advantaged children. And I think that is an effective strategy. And I think that actually can be, uh, oh, I think that strategy can be uh, very effective and is a policy uh, that should be, should be adopted in uh, the structure of, uh, of uh, social policy. Uh, so it's really, uh, it's, it's an affirmative strategy. It's not a negative strategy. Because you could put a negative form on it, you know, putting everybody down in like a cultural revolution setting, which you don't want to do. So. Mm. But realistically, um, every child having exactly the same opportunity is not achievable, right? No, but you could start moving it more in that direction, that's what I'm saying. And that's why the early years and the, the you know, the early years, you know, in through elementary school and so forth provide this kind of opportunity for those children to actually engage. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think the, there really is a fundamental role that could be played by having a, uh, uh, you know, protecting the early years and letting the family be uh, playing a very, very powerful role. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, having family supplement programs play a family role, a powerful role. But you don't, but you want, see what I'm talking about is empowering the family. And so you don't want to discourage middle class and upper middle class children, families, from investing in their children. But you just kind of want to galvanize the other groups of parents with resources of various kinds. That's the point, I think. So I think moving in that direction would make a difference. Um, in the end of my interviews, I always have two standard questions. Okay. One of them is, what one topic does the media and politics the, uh, not give enough attention to? Can you think of one thing that you would like the media to talk more about? About all possible social issues? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know the media in Austria, so I can't tell you what's, mm. uh, what, what's, what deficiencies or benefits occur here. But I would simply say, at least from, this is more of a U.S. experience, but I would say that um, some foundational issues, like related to the family uh, and the role of women and the opportunities of women and children, probably receive less coherent attention than it should. And it's partly a matter of putting, to, kind of putting the dots together, connecting the fact that these things are related. So it's not just schooling, it's not just children, it's not just childcare, it's not just women working. It's that these are highly interrelated issues and that the value of seeing those relationships is really something that I think just doesn't receive much attention. And it's not just the media, I think it's just in public understanding generally. I think people generally put these in boxes. That, so I think separating uh, these items out a little more effectively could be uh, very beneficial. And separating. Separating is the wrong way to use the term here. What I mean is joining these issues, but understanding that it's a related set of issues, but focusing on that 
and then recognizing that a lot of social problems come from not recognizing. I mean, you know, we look at crime, we look at issues of health, we look at, we typically treat all of these as separate issues, but there's a core of abilities and capabilities that account for a lot of these problems. And I think if we don't recognize that, we are missing a real opportunity. But that's asking for the press and for public discourse to be more rational, I suppose, in that sense, to look at more evidence-based and look at the evidence that's out there now increasingly. And if people find our conversation very interesting and they want, want to know more about it, what are three books you can recommend to them? Three books? Well, there's a website I would actually give you, as opposed to a book. Websites are more common these days anyway. There's something called the Heckman Equation, where we actually have a lot of documents from many different people, not just myself and other, looking at the role of uh, aspects of human development. You mentioned uh, a bit ago uh, this book by Putnam. I think uh, it's more of an American study, U.S. study. Um, But I think that's that would be, I think, useful. There's a there's a study that was done. Now you're talking for an educated audience, I assume. Yes, but a uh, book would be nice. Our, our website is okay, but uh, people don't really read studies in their free time. Ah, okay. So well, but I mean, the book. If you were to ask a sort of a single book, uh, I mean, I wrote a very popular book called "Give Kids a Fair Chance," but it was more like a an interview that turned into a book, short, very short book, but with commentary from different positions. So the benefit of that book, which is, I think, published by MIT Press a few years ago, the benefit of that is that you get not only my position, but dissenting positions. And so you're getting a range of views. I get, a, I get the last word, but it's all fairly short documents. So it's easy to read, and it also represents a spectrum of opinions. I think that's a reasonable starting place for some of these arguments, but it's really talking about the role of the family. That's one book. Um, other books, I mean, there, there are a lot of these scholarly studies, but, uh, uh, you know, the Putnam book is showing the importance of family life, but that's uh, it's a lot of anecdotes, and, um, and uh, it really does get to the core, and it's very American-oriented. So it may not be something of general interest to Austrian. So if I were to think of a book, like a European, a book that might appeal to a more European audience on this with European topics. I'm not sure there's some OECD reports, but you're suggesting that's not going not to be what you wanted to, to hear about. Uh, so let's not talk about OECD. Uh, and there are these special... But, but honestly, the website is very accessible. And I think uh, it's easy to use, and you can then kind of shop through it and see a range of issues, discussions that are there. And maybe it's easier than a book, which you know you read kind of a linear way. Here you can jump around in a website and get a structure of you know this is one one piece of interaction, this is something else going on. So you get a structure of uh, the composite of the arguments, all of its different components. The studies on the evidence, you know, both very simple summaries and uh, also detailed studies too, if you're interested. So it allows people to explore their interests to the to the range of depth they want to go on each of these topics. So that's one one site. There's also a another website that's put out by this group at Harvard called the Center for the Developing Child. 
that website, however, I think is, is, is very, if I had to make a criticism of it, it's not looking at this broad notion of human development. It's focusing so much on the first two or three years, and it leads to this kind of almost determinism, you know. The early years are really important, and the idea is that somehow our brains no longer are developing after age three or something. I think it has a, it's, it's hard as in the right place. I just think it gets carried away with these, some of these slogans like toxic stress and so forth, that human beings are more resilient than what that website suggests. And so a lot of serious social scientists and developmental scientists uh, question. So that, but it, it does have rhetorical value um, for question, no question about it. Okay, I will, I will put the links to the websites on the description of the podcast. Yeah. Thank you very much for taking the time, James. Okay, very good, yes.